Okay, let's have, a, let's have a word of prayer to get started, and then we'll look into our Bible study tonight. Father, we're thankful that uh, while we have adversity in this world, that in your Son we have peace, and help us to be those that would rest at your right hand in Christ and enjoy that peace even at this moment, and help us as we look at your word tonight to be able to understand it. Uh, in a way that uh, would be encouraging and that we might learn it in such a way that we can use these truths to encourage others as we may have opportunity and we thank you for it. Amen. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, <coughs> Second Thessalonians chapter 1, we spent last week uh, kind of doing some background material outside of my notes that uh, that I've done. I went and did some other things while I was reading through this, where we were working up to the background for verse 6, trying to distinguish between um, what the scriptures call the day of the Lord, the day of God's judgment in the future, and the time in which the Lord comes back and rescues us, and that there's a distinction between these two. And uh, so we come to verse 6, and this was the background for that. And part of the reason we have to do that is because when we look at the verses in this following context, we all think it's just one event. But in reality, we have several things that are all compressed into, a, into kind of a small statement here. It's a really a loaded statement, but it's all compressed in here. And there's actually several events to be considered. And uh, so let me walk through those events first of all, from as I understand them from my perspective, and then we're going to go back and we're going to talk about some specifics. So I think it might be helpful for you to kind of walk through this and think about um, the, uh, the larger series of events that are going on. One of the things in verse 5, <clears throat> where we were, where he says that you might be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, that's what's going on right now. It's not a future thing we're worrying about. That's a potential thing right now at the present time. Verse 6, indeed it is a righteous thing with God to repay those who are troubling you with trouble. That's not right now. That's future. We're going to sit on that a little while this evening. That's a future event. And to you, the ones being troubled, relief with us. Now that relief... I believe when he's looking at this in verse 7, that relief, we do begin to experience it at what we call the rapture. And let's just all put this in perspective to make sure we're all on the same page. From God's point of view, right now, we're living in this period that he refers to as the dispensation or the house rule of grace from God. That has to do with how we live. Everybody in all history have been saved by grace everybody. But during the time since the day of Pentecost in Acts 2 up to the present time and however long God continues this out in the future, we not only are saved by grace initially, but we're saved by grace in um, we're saved by grace in the present also. That's how we live. We live by a principle of grace. We do not live by the law. Okay? Israel lived by the law. They were saved by grace, but they still live by the law for 1500 years from the time of Moses coming down Mount Sinai until the death and resurrection of Christ. So here we are. We're in this period. This is when the church is existing. And when he is done with his work with the church, Jesus Christ comes back 
and he takes his church. He comes in the air. We've already seen this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He comes in the air, and we're gathered up to him. It doesn't say he comes down here to us. He comes in the air, and we gather to him and meet him in the air. That's what Paul said there in 1 Thessalonians 4. That's what Jesus said even in John uh, 14 when he says, I'm going to go get a place ready for you. I'm going to come back and get you and take you where I am. I'm not going to come back down here and hang out with you. Okay, so that's him coming and getting us. When he has come and taken us then, he resumes this period of the law that started with Moses. There's seven years left of that period of law. We, we talked a little bit about that last week, I believe. And there's seven years left to finish that, that time of law. And he's going to go back and he's going to resume what he was doing with Israel to finish these details up. Okay. So what started back there, we're in this kind of a hiatus on that for the moment. He resumes us here. There's seven years. But he also, during that time, is going to be pouring out his judgment on the earth. Now, Paul says in Romans 1 that right now, when mankind acts in a way that's not the way God wants, they do at times get, shall we say, qualities or samples of God's anger. So it's not saying it's happening all the time, but there are every occasional examples of God's anger in time. Uh, toward, Where's that at? Romans chapter 1, and I think it's verse 17 or 18. <clears throat> it's off the top of my head. It's after the statement on the gospel, so that's why I think 17 or 18. 17. 17. Thank you, Peggy. 18. 18, okay. But when we move out into this period of seven years in the future, the book of Revelation says that that is the time of God's anger. And there's two words for God's anger in Greek. There's the word orge and there's the word thumos. Thumos comes from the word heat. Orge has this idea of to, to rage at a thing. The Old Testament looked at it as being hot and snorting the nose. It's the way the Old Testament image that used of those words. And our Bibles translate it wrath. Okay. And... Book of Revelation says that comes out unmixed. Now, you and I may not appreciate that uh, in the way our culture is with alcohol. But in the first century culture, do you know who a drunk was? We don't think we know what a drunk was. But both the Romans and the Greeks understood that a drunk was a person that drank straight alcohol. They drank wine straight. They drank hard liquor straight. Because, because everybody, because in their culture... Everybody from the time they were young drank wine, but they always cut it. 60% water, about 40% wine. That's the way everybody drank it. And they did that because, well, they didn't have city filtration systems where they could dump chlorine and stuff in there to get, kill all this, this junk that's you know, bad for your gut and will make you really sick. And so you know, they have to keep these giant systems clean. Was it, was it stronger back then? Was their wine stronger? No. So they no. were consuming wine in their water to disinfect the water. Yes, yeah. So everybody from the time they were from the time they were weaned, they all grew up kind of drinking this very diluted wine. So when it says in the book of Revelation that God is going to give them his anger and his wrath poured out unmixed. Unmixed, undiluted. It's, it, what it's saying is, what you've been getting, anything you've gotten from God in the present time, anything that's happened from God out there in the world by, that God's done, it's always been dilute. But in the future, when God has his seven years, he's going to pour out his, in his anger on mankind undiluted anger. He doesn't hold anything back. And that anger comes, I'm, I'm giving you a synopsis here, but just trying to put this in perspective. It comes in, in first three and a half years, comes in a series of seals, that he breaks seals. And each one of those seals involves some aspect of God's anger. The last half involves three sets of seven things. It involves seven uh, trumpets. So each trumpet, when there's a trumpet, then there's a judgment of anger that follows. There are bowls. They're pictured of bowls, of pouring out bowls of God's anger on mankind. And there's a very specific judgment with each one. You can read about them in the book of Revelation, and they're not hard to understand. They're, people that think Revelation's hard to understand, I wonder if they've ever actually read it. Are there things in there that we go, what are those things flying through the air that have tails like scorpions and heads like 
lions and manes like women's hair. Okay, yeah, is that something we don't know what it is? Sure. But most of the book isn't hard to understand, and the judgments are pretty clear. Okay, did you just think up a bit about the scorpions? Because I don't ever remember reading about scorpions. Yeah, yeah, there's these, there are these creatures that go out into the world, and they have tails like scorpions, and they look like lions, and they have, like, manes, but it looks like women's hair as they fly through the air, and they torment people. Okay. And then the last of those judgments, we don't even know what it is. There are seven, seven thunders. Revelation 9. Thank you. Okay. There are seven thunders. And those seven thunders, he doesn't tell us what those are. He, you know, you, he spares you the seven thunders. John has to write the seven thunders down, puts them in a little book, and then he's supposed to eat the book. And I always think it's interesting. He eats the book and he's like... Mmm, when I first tasted it, it was tasting like honey. It was sweet. In other words, it's like, boy, when you first see the judgment, you're like, oh, yeah, God, that's good. But he says, then it hit him in his stomach, and then he had a really upset stomach over it. Which the significance of that is, John got to experience how bad those thunders are, and God could have told you about them, but they'd leave you all with a sour stomach. You'd all be kind of going, God, I don't know, that's a little over the top. Because we're unglorified. We wouldn't appreciate it. So, we have, here's the time the church is. Christ comes back for us. That's when our relief that he refers to in, um, in verse um, 7, that's when that begins. The trouble that, he, that he's talking about here, troubling those who trouble you, that is, that's this period of time that starts after we're gone where he's pouring out his anger on the world. And at the end of that, Christ comes back in full judgment over the world. He slays these armies of men with just a word. We talked about that last week. We looked at that over in Revelation 19. And, we, and he does that. That's that return. And when he comes back there, we also, when he's being unveiled like that, we're still getting relief. It's not like we get momentary relief when he comes back and takes us. That relief for us is just permanent from then on. And you know the significance of that relief? It's what I was just telling you about that the little book that John got to eat, tastes sweet, stomach, uh, was soured, is that once Christ has come back for us, we've seen Christ as he is and we're changed, you and I are never going to look at the problems in this world and sin like we do right now. Do we sometimes look at bad things people do and make excuses for it? That's just bad parenting. It's just bad. If their parents just were better parents, the kids wouldn't have turned out like that. You know, but they just made bad choices, bad environment. I don't know, whatever things are. You know, we're not going to do any of that. We're going to see it with the kind of righteous, with the kind of righteous knowledge that Christ does. And we're going to look at it and go, that is absolutely what that deserves. And we're going to be able to see ourselves and go, if it hadn't been for God's grace, we would have deserved that too. But I don't think we're going to sit there going, oh man, thank goodness it didn't happen to me. I think we're going to look at it and go, no, that's what they deserve. That is a, God is completely righteous and we're not going to stand there going, God, come on, man, that's a harsh. We're not going to do that. And that's part of the significance of that relief. At the end of that time, when Christ comes back, there's two judgments that take place. For the people that are living, that are still living when he comes back at the end of there, that aren't, that aren't killed in that one big battle, he judges the nations, Matthew 25, the sheep and the goats, that's the nations, the Gentiles, he judges them. He judges before that in Matthew, well, it's the first part of Matthew 25, and the end of Matthew 24, he judges the Jews, the servants, his slaves. So he judges the Jews and he judges the nations. A good, by way, good demonstration that that's not about the church because the church is Jews and Gentiles mixed together and we're no longer Jews or Gentiles. That's gone. So if they're still being identified as Jews and still being identified as Gentiles, we're talking about something that isn't, doesn't involve us. Okay. We're going to be present during that. Now, just to put this in perspective, if the Lord came back for us tonight and we were caught up there's a chance that every one of us has somebody that we know or some bodies that we know that actually are going to live through Daniel's 70th week. We, we may be aware 
as as we're uh, observing the the judgments, we may be observing this pre these people that we know and may and people that that are dear to us, family, friends, and we might watch them being subject to that. But what if they survive to the end? But they're still this unbeliever, because there's gonna be a lot of unbelievers at the end of this. Those people that are unbelievers at the end, when Christ comes back, we're going to watch them stand and be judged by the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to be there with him while he's judging them. And we're not going to look down there and go, hey, that guy was my best friend. He was my best man at my wedding. Something like that. It's not going to happen. Okay. We're going to be able to see it the way he sees it. Fast forward. That's not, because that's the next one. So then there is then there is a thousand years in which there are people that are believers that are resurrected, not that's us. Sheep and goats. Yes. Sheep and the goats in the judgment of the slaves. There's that two. was at the end of the Daniel's 70th week. Oh. Right, okay. okay. I'm taking much longer to do this synopsis. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, I am so sorry about this. Why are you Just, sorry now? We don't mind. Well, just because it's getting involved, and I'm afraid I'm afraid we'll lose our main point over here in the text. He returns. He, he carries out that judgment, and then he establishes the, the beginning of his kingdom. Now, his kingdom doesn't end, but there's a thousand years of that kingdom in which there are a group of people that were martyred for their faith during that Daniel 70th week, during that time of judgment. They're, they're martyred by the world, and those people are resurrected, and they get to live and reign on the earth with Christ. Not in the same way that you and I are reigning with them, but they will be reigning also. They've got a capacity in which they reign. At the end of that, and that is called the... We call it the millennium, but that's only because Revelation 20 tells us six times that it's a thousand years long. A thousand years that Satan is in the A thousand years that he's bound and a thousand years that those people get to reign with him in that capacity. A thousand years then Satan is loose. Right. And kind of but the kingdom goes on. Yeah. The kingdom, yeah, there's no end to his kingdom. Yes. But it's at that time back so where I lived referred to as millennial kingdom. That's what we refer to that as. But that's kind of our designation, you know. Yeah. If you read older writers on this going back a few centuries, they didn't refer to it as a millennium back then. They called it, they were, uh, it was called Kiliism. Because Kia comes from the Greek word Kilias, which meant a thousand. <laughs> Same thing. Our, we have mill. So. We're only halfway done with the video game. So when what? So when people are like uh, checking, are you a pre-trip, pre-mill? You know, that's the pre-mill. That's what you're referring to. That's that's this time that Christ returned there at the at, at the beginning of that. At the end of that, there's a mass rebellion. Think of all these people that have lived under the reign of Christ in a perfect world. There's no curse. The curse is gone. I I can't even imagine what that's like living in that world. Uh, living in a world where there's no curse, and they've lived under that. And there's been no need that a person has to have. All their needs can be totally taken care of, totally provided for. And this is what they're living under, and they're living in this perfect environment where every day they can see God the Son on the New Jerusalem with the Father reigning. They can see this. And he's coming and he's dealing with the issues that these people have and judging on their behalf when there's a question. Josh and I can't figure this out. He can he take care of this stuff. See? And they live in this perfect environment. And they don't love righteousness. But what? And they won't love righteousness. But they still won't love righteousness. And they at the end. Have a sin nature, right? They still have a sin nature. But they don't have the solicitations for the sin nature, and you're going to have a lot of. This, well. Well, they have the spirit inside of them when they believe. They'll still have the Holy Spirit. Well, we're we're talking about. I'm confused no. at who we're talking about. Okay, we're talking about we're talking about if you, if there's believers, that's the case. But right. it, but if we have unbelievers, this is different. It's different if we're talking about unbelievers. Right, right. And the reason I'm talking about unbelievers is because at the end of this, tells us in Revelation 20 that Satan's loosed for just a little while after the thousand years are finished. And he goes out and he deceives the whole world. And they come up in mass around Jerusalem, surround the city. As many as sand Yeah. Mm -hmm. And fire from God comes out and just consumes them and it's all done. And then he destroys the whole universe. All of this is gone. 
It's going to destroy everything and all of its works, and it's all destroyed and burned up. And then he, then the sun comes down, sits on a throne, and everybody that has lived, that has died in history, are resurrected at that point. And as they're resurrected, they stand before him. So I'm trying to put this in perspective for us about the relief, this issue of relief. Because there's going to be people that are going to come down there, and we're going to see people down there. I've had people that have been very good friends of mine in, 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 the, in the past. I remember being in high school, sharing the gospel with different friends of mine, and just they just rejected it. They were they were good. They're, they're, they go to church. They were good in their church. They didn't need they didn't need anything else because they were baptized as kids, little infants. They were fine. And some of those people are. There's a good chance I'm going to look down there and I'm going, huh, I went to school with him from kindergarten through tenth grade. I know I, I know who that is. And you're going to recognize those people. Okay. I had a. Um, I mean, all right. What? That you're going to know them? I don't think you won't know those people. I, I don't think there's any reason that God erases from our minds these things that we've known in the past. Um, and so this is going to... Is there a verse is what I think. Oh, 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 is there a verse that tells us we're going to recognize all those people? No, I don't, I don't, have, a, I, I, I don't have that verse. It says he's going to raise the dead, the great, and the small, and everybody that has died without Christ was going to be raised at that time. Here, keep your finger in 2 Thessalonians and turn to Revelation chapter 2. This is a very important statement. Revelation chapter 2, and this is the church at Smyrna. This is one of only two churches of these seven for which Christ has no criticism. No criticism. This church in the church at Philadelphia has no criticism. Only praise. Philadelphia is the other one. And Smyrna. And Smyrna is the crushed church. In fact, it comes from the word myrrh, which was a sap that came from a church, from a tree that when they crushed it, that's when it actually gave off its aroma, was when it was crushed. Which is kind of symbolic of the fact that when this church came under persecution, if you read through this, when they were crushed, that's actually when they really smelled their best. Maybe an encouragement for you and I, if everything in the world turns on us and all of a sudden our comfortable lives are totally turned upside down and we find ourselves completely on the out and being crushed by the world, to remember that we could actually smell the best we've ever smelled for God, to put it in those terms. What? How did smell come up that we smelled? Because myrrh, myrrh. It, it, they got they got to smell it by crushing it. They'd have to take this stuff up and they grind it up and then they would get this fragrance. But notice what he says here. In verse 11, there is this promise that he makes. He says, the one having ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So it's not just to that church, it's plural churches. Any church that, that falls into the context of those needs, this was good for them to know. But he says, then he goes in the middle of the verse, and the one that is overcoming. Who's an overcomer, according to John? Those, yes, those who believe that Jesus is the Christ. That's out of First John chapter 5. And John is the same one writing this letter here. And it says, so the one overcoming will not be hurt. Now, most of your Bibles are going to say, is not hurt by the second death. Now, my two Greek students here. I can't pull it up. Our two, my two Greek students should pay attention to the fact that the, the preposition that's translated by is the preposition Hold on. out she, from. Oh. It's the preposition at. He's not listening. And what the significance of that means, what it means is nothing comes out of the second death that hurts you. He's not saying you're not hurt by the second death. Of course you're not hurt by the second death because you don't go to the lake of fire. Go read Revelation 20. The lake of fire is the second death. But nothing coming out of the second death is going to hurt you. Know what the significance of that is? Let's correct my statement. If you do happen to recognize somebody, and I'm saying you're going to, but if you happen to know somebody that is standing in judgment while Christ is judging all those people, if you do know them, and they were somebody very important and very dear to you in your life, 
their going through that judgment and being cast into the lake of fire will not hurt you. I did not know this. I, we used to have good visits with my grand. My grandmother's part of the reason I ended up going to seminary because I was going to go to this other Bible college, and I still remember sitting in my grandma's kitchen, uh, visiting with her and and my mom and other family members. But my my mom says says um, tell your grandma what you're thinking of doing, and I said, well, I think I'm going to go into this Bible college. And my I still remember my grandma. Why would you want to do that? You don't want to go there. If you're going to go anywhere to learn the Bible, you need to go over here. Anyway, so it's this grandmother. It's this grandmother. And um, and one of my uncles was the one that shared this with me uh, probably 20, 25 years ago. But he says, he she when she got saved, one of the things that she knew when she got saved was she knew that her father died as an unbeliever. She knew her dad died as an unbeliever. And it caused her initially uh, some grief and pain. But she came to the conclusion, and this was one of the passages, where she ended up having comfort that she goes, it's okay. And she was fine. And she was able to get past that and not live with that pain all the time uh, of, of that loss. And so, so this is what happens. So when we're talking about this relief, when Paul says this idea that he gives us relief, yes, it starts when Christ comes back for us. But it continues as we observe his judgments in the following seven years. It's going to continue during the thousand years during which Satan is bound. Because, well, um, somebody, said, um, somebody said that people still have a sin nature. And, yeah, they're going to have sin natures. And people that don't learn to keep your, their sin nature in check, what happens to them during that thousand years? Yeah, so Satan, Satan sends his angels out into his kingdom and they take out of his kingdom all those who offend and all things that stumble him. So both people as well as things are all being taken out of his kingdom. Now, I don't think you meant Satan's angels. No, Christ's angels. I'm sorry, not Satan's angels. <laughs> I was going to say, angels. I was going to ask like Satan? Yeah, no, 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 no. Okay, I apologize. Not Satan's angels, not Satan's angels. Christ's, God's angels. But he sends them out in the kingdom and they remove those. Now think about that. If you've got a sin nature, and let's and let's use one of the examples that Jesus talks about when Jesus is talking about the kingdom over in Matthew. He says, if a guy looks at a woman, he said, Well, he says, you know, the law said don't commit adultery. But he says, But you know what? Out there in the kingdom, the law is going to be so strict. If you're a man, if you are taking a look with the intention, it's not that you glanced and happened to catch sight of somebody and go, oh. It's not that. It's that you are looking with the intent of looking with lust on her. They're held accountable for that out there in the kingdom. And he says, you need to deal with that right then and there because if you let it go any further, guess what's going to happen? You're going to be taken and you're going to be thrown in the lake of fire. You don't think that's going to make an impression on guy? Bob down the street, the angels just came and picked him up the other day and took him off and he is gone. And you're going to get guys that are walk down the street. I'm trying. I'm exaggerating here, and I'm not trying to make light of a situation. But seriously, all I could think of is if I watched that happen, I'd be walking down the street like this. <laughs> you know, I wouldn't want to make contact eye contact with anybody for fear that I might, you know, that I might see something. And so, so there's a lot less grace in this time because it's law. It is a form of law. The king, the Sermon on the Mount, is about law. It's about the laws of the kingdom, and it's very plain. He says, your righteousness has to be better than that of the scribes and the Pharisees, which his crowd is thinking, oh, the world, how is that going to happen? Because the scribes and the Pharisees were meticulous about keeping the law. It's so going to come down to your own fallen nature, demonstrates, yeah. And so the reason why it's okay to go back to Matthew 5 or whatever passage that is to use the Sermon on the Mount in the Millennial Kingdom is because Christ ruling at that time was, he was offering that kingdom. That's if right. they would have accepted it, yeah. then the Millennial Kingdom would essentially <coughs> 
but it's but he's but he's still telling you what he's doing. He's giving you this is what the nature of this kingdom is like. This is the nature of the people that go into the kingdom, and this is what the nature of the kingdom will be like when when it comes. And okay. correct me if I'm wrong. They're also going to have the law written on their hearts if they're a believer. Believers are going to have their law written on their hearts. Yeah, unsaved people do not have the law written on their hearts. So let's and go back. If they get sick, they can go up. With a Jewish priest, a Jew takes the arms and go up to heaven and get well. But they got to believe that. So see, most of them are just, you know, they're going to want it. It's going to be a crazy time. Yeah. <laughs> and we're going to get to be observing all of this. Okay. Honey, you're saying it. So. I'm not sure I want to get to observe all of this. Yeah. I'd rather observe you be <laughs> Well. But it, <laughs> Well, but to think of it, if you're a believer during that time, that's actually really good down here when those things are going on and the things you're participating there. Because you're going to have, as Josh said, his promise is they're going to have the law written in their hearts. So it's not going to be a problem. They've got a governor put in there that doesn't let them speed, you know. They're going to be, they'll have that law in there to control. Be righteous. What? Their choice, that's what your heart is, will yeah, the law written in there, they'll always make righteous decisions. So believers won't be subject to that judgment. That's only for those who are unbelievers in that time. So let's go back to 2 Thessalonians, if you're not already back there. So we have these people being troubled that are troubling you. That's future. We have our having relief. That is from the time Christ comes all the way on out into the future. We always have relief from that moment on. But in particular, he says in verse 7, in the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ from heaven with his angels of power. That's not the rapture. That's, that's the end of Daniel's 70th week in a flame of fire, giving vengeance or punishment to those that do not know God and have not obeyed the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he goes on, which sort then he will repay. He repays then with the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of our Lord. That comes at three stages. Well, three times that that is instigated. It's instigated but when he comes back at the end of Daniel's 70th week with the Jews that are unbelievers, the slaves, they're judged. They're, they personally stand and judge by him. It's the Gentiles, the goats, at the sheep and goats judgment of the Gentiles, they get that judgment then. So that's when those groups are consigned to eternal destruction away from the presence of God. And the last time is that is what he tells us that what? Great white throne judgment at the end of Revelation 20. So there's three key times. Now I would say periodically during the during that thousand years that judgment is enacted when he sends angels out. But the whole point is there is nobody that goes to the lake of fire. There is nobody that it receives this eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and away from the glory of his strength, nobody, ha that happens until they stand personally before the Lord Jesus Christ and are judged. Judges the Jews, judges the Gentiles, judges individuals throughout this time. Well, he's always judging individuals, but then and then judging the individuals at the great white throne, the unsaved dead that are resurrected. And so he's judging them. And, they're, and I, I always think about that. Could you imagine having momentarily be resurrected or standing there, maybe living, and you're standing there before the Lord Jesus Christ, and you actually have that privilege of seeing him as he is. The same thing is going to happen to us when we when the Lord comes for us. But they get that standing in judgment, and they get to see that. Whatever else may be involved in the lake of fire, to me, that's going to be the worst torment of anything, is knowing that they this they could have spent all of eternity in his presence. And now they're going to spend all of eternity away from his presence. This is what I rejected. I rejected this. I rejected this. If you're a little bit older, there used to be a show on called Let's Make a Deal with Monty Hall when I was a kid. I think they brought it back with, with uh, some new guy. But... Um, but we used to watch that, and it was always interesting. You'd have a person, and they've got, you know, they would be dealing with Monty Hall, and got a deal, and they've got $1,000 in their hand. Now, you can keep that $1,000, or you can trade it for what's behind curtain number one. Oh, and you get people in the audience, curtain number one, go for the curtain, keep the cash. And they're doing this, and the person goes, 
I'm going to go for the curtain. And sometimes they open the curtain and they're like, wow, you got a new Mustang. Sometimes they open it up and it's an old donkey. You know, like this. Okay, all of that. I just, I know that's a really poor analogy. Yeah. Oh, is it? Oh, they still have that show? Really? And you know yes. this because of your mom, right? Yeah. <laughs> wow. I didn't even know that was... <laughs> but the significance of this is here they were momentarily in the present. They, it was right there. They could have had this. They could have enjoyed this. But they traded this for what they wanted rather than believing in him. I just... It's going to be, there is physical torment in the lake of fire, but I still, in my opinion, when I look at that in statements like this, I think the biggest torment is going to be the torment of the mind and the soul. So yeah. something to think about with that, though, that's, that really should put us in perspective is that um, uh, nobody would choose that, and we wouldn't have chosen it either, except for God is the one who allowed us to believe so that we would choose him. So so we would be just like that person looking up to that themselves. Right. Yeah, yeah. I think that, just a common theme, man choosing what they want, just like the Israelites wanting a man for a king rather than, a, rather than God for a king. Um, and it's even like now we are believers, but it's in our Christian life. Are we choosing what God wants us to do? Are we choosing what we want to do? That's kind of the... Why and, every dispensation ends in Philly. Yeah. And I worked, and I was working back through this today for the, that little, the little Bible study I put up online uh, every day. And I was going back through the statement that Paul makes in Romans 16 about the fact that one of the things that it takes for you and I to become stable is the proclamation concerning who Jesus Christ is. And, and I, when, I think, when I think of that, I always think, as crazy as it sounds, so this is a Christian application, kind of running with this idea that Josh and Faye are bringing, bringing out, as a Christian application of some of this, the... You know what our, sometimes our biggest problem in our Christian life is? It's us always focusing on the Christian life. Am I measuring up? Am I doing enough? Am I doing all the good things? Am I doing all the things that my pastor, my pastor told me I should be doing this, 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 this. They give me this list. You know, you can't, you go to a lot of churches. I've got 10 take-home points for you on this today. And it's, and sometimes those take-home points are good because they're reflecting the Bible says this. But a lot of times I listen to guys over the years and their take-home points are like, well, they just, They've come up with these five things that they think are really good for you. And it's like things you need to be doing. And is it wrong in and of itself? No. But we focus on that and we lose sight of who Jesus Christ is for us right now. In the same way that the world is always looking at what they think they've got to be doing down here. And they don't have time to think about Jesus Christ. As Christians, we can do the same thing. We're always thinking of all the things we have to do to be a good Christian and keep God happy instead of focusing on who Jesus Christ is for us right now. Who is my Savior right now? So and that changes that huge perspective of me doing it versus, all right, God, this is what you're wanting to do in me. Like, I think that I need to do this because this is what looks good. But really, it's God, you're doing this work through me, and we're doing it. And the condemnation of, oh, I'm not doing this. It's God, you're doing it. I'm being used by you, and this is amazing that you could use me like this. Mm -hmm. Yes. I've been reading this, and I get to verse 7, and I just can't. The timeline is verse 6, since he's righteous for having repaired the cliff to those who afflict you. That's at the end of seven years. And reward with with rest you who are afflicted, along with us. This will take place at the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven with his powerful angels. Okay, so that statement there, the relief that he's telling us here, is when they are getting trouble and when the Lord comes back at the end of Daniel's 70th week, we're still getting relief. He doesn't say here in verse 7 that we get relief at the rapture, but that's when it starts. I'm saying that's when it starts. 
But he is assuring us that when he judges the world and when the Lord comes back at the end of that, you and I are still getting relief at that time. You and I are not going to experience the agony and trouble that the people in the world are getting. We are going to be free from that. In fact, he actually... That's right. And then the other part of this is, look at verse 10 here of 2 Thessalonians 1. It says, when he comes to be glorified by his saints and to be marveled at or amazed at by all those who have believed because our testimony was believed uh, by you in that day. That when he says to be glorified by his saints, turn over to Romans chapter 8. <clears throat> Romans chapter 8, and he tells us in, uh, let's go to verse 18. We've been through these verses before, but I just want to point something out in here. He says, for I reckon or consider, this verse 18, Romans 8, 18. For I consider then that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy uh, facing the coming glory that is going to be revealed because of us. In other words, when you look at whatever I'm going through down here, whatever the nature of that suffering is, when you look at the glory that I'm getting in the future, it's nothing. It's nothing, he says. Verse 19, for the eager expectation of the creation. He doesn't say our eager expectation, the creation. It is eagerly expecting the unveiling of the sons of God. See, we're sons of God right now, but it's not plainly that it's not plain that we're sons of God. Because I don't always act like a son of God. You don't always act like a son of God. It says, for the creation has been subject to vanity. That word for vanity means creation under the curse right now is not producing what it's supposed to produce. That's why I don't care how hard farmers and and orchardists and all these people work around here, you have seen nothing yet compared to what God has planned or what this creation was supposed to be like. I always think when you go back to Genesis, and it said that, that Adam was told to tend the garden, and that word tend is actually the Hebrew abad, to serve it. It was to serve the garden. We'd understand it was a metaphor for working. But people always go, well, Adam had to work before the fall. How hard was work when you didn't have a curse? <clears throat> when you didn't have to fertilize? You didn't have to go out and pull tons of weeds? You didn't have to cultivate and cultivate? It takes a lot of work, no matter where you live on the planet, to produce a crop. It didn't take hardly anything to produce a crop before the fall. That's yeah, part. Yeah. I mean, the food didn't fall in his mouth. <laughs> yeah. So there were things he had to do, but I just can't imagine what it's like. Because part of the curse is now you're going to eat by the sweat of your brow, meaning you're going to have to really toil for this. Okay. So it's our creation is subject to vanity, but it's not subject willingly, but on account of him who subjected it in hope or upon a hope that even the creation itself will be freed from slavery of corruption because of the freedom of the glory of the children of God. In other words, when we are unveiled, he's mentioned that two times, once in verse 19, and he kind of brings it up again in verse 21, when we show our freedom, when our freedom is shown to the world. See, when, when Christ comes back at the end of this, he comes with us. We come back with him like we're armies from heaven, but we're not there to fight. We're there to show a display of what his saving grace can do in the lives of people. And you're going to see these people that come back that are perfect, these people that are freed, these people that are unveiled as sons of God, and we get to come back and he displays us to the world as he comes back to judge the world. And back over there in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, he makes that statement there. In verse 10, it says, He is then glorified by his saints. 2 Thessalonians 1.10. When we come back with him, he gets glory. He's glorified by us. How? Because we are a testimony to his work. 
It's not a testimony like, hey, I want you all to see Tim. Tim has been training in the Christian life for this many years, and he, he got these many gold medals down there in his Christian life, and he did these great things. Why, he put in way more hours than some of these other people. Let's give a hand for Tim. Now let's bring Josh Butler out. Josh, why don't you just step to the back? No, just kidding. Probably be the other way around. I'm just, it, it's not going to be like that. The whole point is every single one of us is going to be an absolute testimony to his grace. Every one of us will be a testimony to his saving grace and his word. And that's why he's glorified. We don't get the glory. He gets the glory because they're going to look at it and they're going to know that whatever we have that has any value to it, as we come back, all of it is due to him. They're going to recognize that. We're going to know that. The angels are going to recognize that. It's an amazing thought. So, I just got to see how long we've been going because I think we've been going quite a while here. Okay. That's a good place to stop. I didn't get through any of my major notes <laughs> that I wanted to. That's all right. But we covered a lot of material. And we gave you a good... But I, I just felt like it was necessary for us to kind of see that there's a whole bunch of events technically in these verses. But they're all just kind of crammed together. Why? Because his main point is to say... You guys down there over in Thessalonica, you're going through a lot of suffering right now. And it's suffering because the world, the Thessalonians, these unsaved people, are treating you really bad. Can you say that really bad? Really is. Really is bad. <laughs> yeah. They're treating you badly. Okay? You're going through this. But you need to know that there's a time coming in which you're going to be getting relief while at the same time he's pouring out trouble. And if you think that they've troubled you, you think that the world has treated you badly? Keep in mind, it is nothing compared to the trouble that those people will experience when God pours out trouble on them. And it all kind of culminates in his returning and us coming back as a witness to what he's going to do, but also as a testimony to his grace. To me, it's ironic. He comes back with his judgment and at the same time, those that are testimony to what he could do for a person that actually would believe that gospel. Because remember he says that in verse 8, a flaming fire to give vengeance on those that don't know God. That word know there is oida, meaning they don't even have an objective knowledge of God let alone an experiential knowledge of God. It's like they don't even have a clue as to who God is. Because they don't care. And they have not obeyed the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. How do you obey the gospel? Verse 10. Verse 10. Mm -hmm. the oh, among those who have believed. They've believed the testimony. There, thank you. Right there. You obey by believing. Remember over in John 6, when Jesus tells those people that have chased him across the lake because they all ate, you know, 5,000 men plus any other people that were with them, ate all that bread and they saw this and they chased him across the lake and he says, you're not here because you saw a sign. You're here because you guys ate bread and your stomachs are full and you want more. That's the only reason you're here. And he says, quit working for the food that perishes. You know what? My wife made delicious soup. A couple weeks ago, we're still eating on it. We did put it in the freezer in between. But you know, she fed that. We had that soup for lunch. She heated it up. It was really good. But you know what? By 4 o'clock this afternoon, knowing that we're going to come out here, I had to go home and get a snack because I was hungry. You know why? Because that food's perishing. It doesn't, you don't eat it once and then you're like, I'm good. It's like, you got to keep eating, right? It says, don't work for the food that perishes but for the food that remains to eternal life. And they go, oh, yeah, okay, that's what we want. What can we do that we might work this work of God? He goes, this is the work of God. Believe. <laughs> that's the only thing God asks of you is believe. <laughs> but you guys are always working, wanting to do something for God. And God doesn't need you to do anything. He doesn't need you to come and say, God, here I am. I give my heart to you. What does he want with your old stinking heart for? Anyway, he wants you to believe challenge you to find a verse where he says, turn your heart over to him. What he says is believe. Again and again. Believe, believe, believe. How amazing is that when the 
It is. Believe. Have that faith that you are. You do have the power of him in you. Yeah, exactly. Good point. So. Did Paul know what a period was? <laughs> Did he know? Oh, like for a sentence? Oh, all the punctuation was added in they had two punctuation marks, but they rarely used them. You know, them. what I was just thinking is I'd really like to see you diagram this sentence here for me. The whole I will have to pull out my diagram it folder it and see if I have it. It would be incredibly helpful. You've got a sentence in Ephesians 1 that I think is 11 verses long, mm -hmm. I think is what it is. That's, so yeah, you have these. But uh, anyway, I, I hope, just to leave you with this, I hope having given you this kind of spectrum, you, you're able to see all the things that are compressed in this. But I also want you to, if, I have a takeaway for you. <laughs> yeah. But a takeaway from this passage, and that is, you know, when you endure hardship, and none of us really have any, I, serious, I, none of us really know what it's like to endure hardship as a Christian. Not at the present time. That may change tomorrow. It may not. I don't know what God's plan you're is. You're saying for our faith. Yes, for our faith. Trials. Oh, yes, yes. But you're saying for our faith. Right, yes. Which is why the Thessalonians were suffering. This, the Thessalonians were suffering this way. Because he says you're being troubled by people. They're troubling you. And that was because of their faith. But if, that, if it is God's determination that we should have to suffer, even if it's just I suffer and the rest of you don't, if that's the case, that for us to have this perspective, that's why Paul's writing this, to put this in perspective for the people, that you're just getting what they can do, not what God can do. You know, Jesus said something similar when he was talking to the disciples. He says, don't fear those that the worst they can do is kill the body. But after they kill you, what else can they do? can't do anything else. He says, you ought to do is fear the one that not only can kill the body, but he can kill the soul because he can cast both of them, the body and the soul, in the lake of fire. And that doesn't mean that they're destroyed and obliterated, but we'll cover that when we get to those verses down below here. Any other questions or comments to add here? Just an interesting thought, just how I can get this out. God, Paul writes that, don't worry, Thessalonians, vengeance will be taken upon these people. They will be thrown into the lake of fire. And often in our humanity, when someone wrongs us, we can be like, oh, we want wrong to happen to them. And oftentimes I'll think like, oh, is that just fleshly? Like they wronged me, so I want wrong to happen to them. Um, but there is a godly form of, like, because I look at Paul, like, saying this, like, oh, they've wronged you. Don't worry. They will be wronged. Like, that, that somehow brings us comfort that, <laughs> good, they'll, get their, they'll feel pain, too. Which mm -hmm. um, I just find it interesting. Like, I don't know, can you say, like, yes, this is how God operates. But it's only with the unbelieving world that they will be re they will or because they didn't believe they will be thrown into like a fire um, because the believers things that they've done wrong has been forgiven right right I just, I just find it interesting like how in humanity we'll be like oh wrong done to them do we get that kind of from God like in the like just did God put that in us a little bit, or is that fleshly when we are wanting wrong to happen to someone else because they wronged us? Could there be a godly vengeance? Oh, I, yeah, I think there can be. And Paul says as much, I think, in Romans 12, where he says, he says, you don't avenge yourselves. Leave it to God. God avenges. God's the one that avenges all these things. So leave, let him take care of it. Don't try to rectify it yourself. Let God deal, be the one that deals with it. And... I don't think he looks at it as wrong. You go to um, Revelation 6 and you have those people early on that are, they're beheaded and their souls are beneath them. He mentioned souls because their emotions are still there and they're in their emotions crying out going, how long are we until you avenge us? So they're dead. 
that they're crying out for, avenge us, avenge our blood on these people. And he says, it'll happen, but just wait. <laughs> it's coming, <laughs> that full vengeance. <clears throat> but again, when we're talking about all those passages, this is people who have wronged us because of our faith. Right. Not like somebody kicked my dog and it really made me mad, or somebody threw eggs at my house. I right. Those are great examples. <laughs> yeah. Somebody pulled my hair. Or... <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I do think that's important because we're, there's other things where, because sometimes people think that they've been wronged by somebody and then you find out the whole story and you're like, well, you kind of brought that on. <laughs> you know, it's like your, you know, your kids are going, hey, my sister or my brother did this to me. And then you kind of find out the whole story. Well, you kind of instigated the problem, you know, <laughs> see. So I'm just saying sometimes we think that we've been wronged and we have easily forget our role that we played in it. This is a role we play in it that we bring it on ourselves because we're doing the right thing, which is a different, which is a different matter. So that's a good thing to remember. And I was just going to say that um, when when that vengeance is the Lord's, is His righteous judgment. Yes. So they're not being wronged; they're being dealt a righteous judgment on that. That's right. Yeah. And everything that God does, God's always God's always acts righteously. Right. Yeah. Yeah, the book of Psalms, he says he's righteous in all of his ways. So whenever God does something, regardless of how we might evaluate it, it's always righteous. Mm -hmm. So what's that verse about God being good? It, it, okay, there's, yeah, there's verses in the Old Testament that says God does good and God does evil. And the way we translate good and evil, we mean we think good is righteous and evil is unrighteous. Yeah, in the Old Testament, it's but that word evil meant disaster. So God could bring disaster on people, which is essentially what happens in the tribulation period when he pours out that judgment. It's the word ra and rasha, two different words, and they both mean disaster or calamity. In fact, when Adam, when Adam ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it wasn't the knowledge of righteousness and unrighteousness. It's the knowledge of this would make me happy and this will make me unhappy. And what did Adam find out? Eating the fruit made him unhappy, and it was too late. You couldn't undo what you'd done. Which is interesting because even that calamity that God allows, that brings on them or whatever, even that is a righteous judgment. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's never yep. a wrong done to No. Oh. So that's a good question. That's a good thing to bring up. whatever we go through on this life is it's not that long it's we're going to have eternity and that's what we look forward to yeah i have an uncle that he's i've he's said this many times this isn't scripture this is just a picture of it but he says it's like this whole life is like standing in the doorway <laughs> it's just stepping into eternity it's just standing in the doorway this whole life um but what is, how does the Bible describe our life? It's a vapor. Go out on a cold morning. It's there and it's gone. It's like the life of a blade of grass in its season. It grows up a little bit. You cut it down. There's nothing. You know. But you can see what? that. Yeah. When you think of eternity, you can see how that would be true. Yes. Right. I mean, if you imagine yourself on the, on the <coughs> other side in eternity, the future after you know, the new, the creation, the new creation of everything, it's like, it's such a tiny part, you know, but now it seems like a long time. And I think when you go through <clears throat> the trials, what has helped me anyway, because my body is not the same as it was three years ago, and 
it just helps so much. <laughs> no, like it just makes it so much more real that this is a short life. Because when you go through the pains and the trials of it, you're like, this is this world. These are the trials of this world. And I won't be in it forever. And it gives you more of that reality and grasp of that's eternity and that's what I look forward to. Because I'm feeling the trials and the heavy of the world on you. And so just, yeah, like that's another reason why God uses trials and suffering. Yeah. Anybody else?